Luke chapter 4. We're going to read from verse uh, 31. And uh, as you're turning there, it is a joy to be with you this morning, bringing you greetings from the church family at Charlotte Chapel up in Edinburgh. Uh, I have been, uh, and even the staff team at Charlotte Chapel have recently been praying for you guys in this time of transition. Uh, John is a dear friend of ours, and uh, no doubt you are feeling the grief, um, as he will be, uh, but we'll be much in prayer for you. Um, don't forget you've got multiple elders, not just John, uh, but you are in good hands uh, with the, the brothers that you have serving you here, but we'll be continuing in prayer for you. Uh, let's pray just now. Uh, we always need uh, the Spirit's help as we come to God's Word, so let's pray and ask for it now. Our Father, uh, we know from 1 Corinthians that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. We need your Spirit to open our eyes and to open our hearts to the truths that you would plant uh, deep in us, truths that would convict us of our sin and so uh, evoke our response to you, but also evoke change in our lives that might spread the glory of your name throughout this world. Incredibly, uh, according to your instruction, the open proclamation of this truth, this word that you have revealed to us through the Holy Scriptures, is the means by which that happens. Even in moments like this, it's so normal. It even seems weak, but that's just the way you like it, because it's in that way that your power is displayed and that your spirit does his work, bringing Jesus into the light for us to see, to behold truly, to love and to adore. Please, Lord, do all of those things for us this morning. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So let's read Luke 4, verse 31 and following. And he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out in a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he rose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, 
all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them and demons also came out of many crying you are the son of god but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the christ and when it was day he departed and went into a desolate place and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them but he said to them i must preach the good news of the kingdom of god to the other towns as well for i was sent for this purpose and he was preaching in the synagogues of judea amen this is god's words well the average person speaks around seven thousand words a day ten thousand if you're from northern ireland uh, not many are significant and i'm not just talking about the northern irish uh, most of our words are simply mundane not many evoke amazement in fact most of them just go unnoticed but once in a while someone says something that really grabs your attention like winston churchill and his we shall fight them on the beaches speech those words were amazing it was delivered of course in parliament to mps uh, broadcast to a nation that was euphoric really eavesdropping on this conversation in parliament as they were um, they were delighted because dunkirk had just happened the evacuation had been a success but churchill knew that the country needed to focus to brace itself for the imminent fall of france and the creeping enemy of nazi germany salivating over britain's shores and churchill of course spoke with great authority his words were both logical and beautiful all at the same time the nation was amazed at his words they have to be up there with some of the most powerful authoritative words ever spoken but someone might shout out well how about martin luther king in the i have a dream speech well i would say yeah we've got a speech off uh, you've heard it surely it's one of the finest pieces of oratory in modern history speaking from the steps of the lincoln memorial uh, king addressed thousands upon thousands gathering in support of the civil rights movement sharing his dream about a future when his children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the content of their skin but by the content uh, the color of their skin but by the content of their character in 1667 words king brought the fight against racism from the regional south to the national stage in the united states of america and they are surely some of the most powerful authoritative words ever spoken but are they the most powerful and authoritative words ever spoken and the obvious answer to that given our reading from luke chapter 4 is no they're not neither churchill nor king nor any other ruler or leader neither aristotle in the past nor any current ted talking crowd wooing flower spouting rhetorician today has spoken words quite like jesus christ not one his words are powerful 
and the proclamation of them a priority. If you want to take one sentence away from anything that I say today, it's that. Let that beat itself into the brain and let that sink deep into the heart so that it, it moves you. It's the way you live. His words are powerful and the proclamation of them a priority for him and for us. And that's what this passage in Luke chapter 4 shows us. In the passage that goes before, uh, you can read that proclamation would be central to Jesus' ministry. That's what's happening in Nazareth as he proclaims the word of God, uh, the, the scriptures, that is. His words would be the means by which people who were ultimately under God's judgment, that is, the spiritually poor, the captive, and so on, would be saved. And Luke, so eager to help us be certain of that fact, orders this account to show us exactly what Jesus meant. And having shown us how Jesus had just, in a sense, immediately before verse 31, done a Houdini in Nazareth, up in the hills, verse 31 says Jesus went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, so Luke's locating us, and on the Sabbath, he taught the people. And what do we see? Two things. I'm going to hang everything in this passage on two main points. One, Jesus' words are powerful, verses 31 to 39, and two, proclaiming them is a priority. That's 40 to 44. So number one, Jesus' words are powerful, verses 31 to 37. So how do we know this? Well, the text tells us he, in verse 31 to 32, teaches with authority, and the people respond in amazement. Now, there's something different about his teaching. Did you notice that? You can read that in the text. That's the thing that stands out. Verse 32, they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. Now, at plain reading of that, you think, that's a funny thing to say. Why would they pick up on the fact that, oh, he's taught with authority? What about all the rabbis and the teachers they'd heard in their day? Were they not speaking with the same kind of authority? What's different here? Well, what the congregation heard that day was different to what they had heard every other Saturday, actually. Because every other Saturday, after prayers were recited, a rabbi would read a passage from the Law of the Prophets and then teach on it. But instead of saying with authority what God had authoritatively said, they basically rehearsed a bunch of opinions stated by other rabbis, other scholars. Uh, it sounded, I guess, a bit more like a literature review that you might write at university. You know, the kind of paper where you don't really state your opinion, you just talk about the subject from lots of different angles, giving lots of different people's opinions on it, and say what everybody else has said in the subject. Well, that's kind of what it sounded like for rabbis teaching in the first century. That's what the regular preachers in Capernaum were doing. So the preacher sounded like he was just reading from a textbook with a billion footnotes, really. But then in comes Jesus, and the emphasis in verse 32 is very clearly on his words. His words. They are his words. Personally owned by him. Personally taught by him. His words aren't secondhand. They're not rehearsals. They are his. He wasn't quoting anyone. He was either expounding the scriptures like you see at the start of Luke 4 or speaking with all the authority that he as the son of God himself possessed. And that's why the people responded the way they did. He didn't speak with the rhythm and repetition of King, nor with the ethos, pathos, and logos of Churchill. He was the logos and spoke as such. And what was the people's response? Amazement. 
They were amazed. The word in the original language used to describe their response is the word ek pleso. Pleso meaning struck, ek meaning out of. In other words, they were struck out of themselves, out of their minds at the authority of this Jesus and his teaching, blown away by the power and authority of his words. You see the same response in all four gospel accounts. So it's not just Luke kind of making it all sound a little bit more flowery. He's not a better storyteller than the other three. In John 7, where temple guards, for example, are sent to arrest Jesus, they return empty-handed. And they're like, why have you returned empty-handed? We told you, it's one, you had one job. Go arrest Jesus. They came back, they didn't have Jesus. What's up with that? They said, no one ever spoke the way this man does. Why? Because there's no one like him. Luke's already shown us that very, very carefully. Luke chapter 1 and 2, basically the whole birth narrative tells you he is God in the flesh. Of course he's going to have authority in his words. Luke 3, the testimonies of John the Baptist and of heaven and of history all point to the divinity of this Jesus of Nazareth. John preparing the way for the Lord, heaven opens for Jesus and declares his identity. He's the son. History traced through the generations of the genealogy, all telling you he is the son of God. That's why his words have authority and there is no higher authority than this. Now, the question that there is for us immediately from the off is, do we recognize his authority? And that his words, the scriptures, absolutely pulse with it. Do we recognize that? Now, if you're here today, you're not a believer. If, we, if you would not say that the death of Jesus on the cross, his resurrection from the dead three days later, uh, and the forgiveness and the hope of eternal life that he extends to me is the best thing ever, if you cannot say that, you're probably sitting here thinking that, well, we're talking about authority. That's a very, very hot topic in this day and age. It's a very uncomfortable notion in our day and age. It's unfashionable in our culture to have a word of authority about anything. In fact, it's the one thing you must not do in our culture. But that's exactly what Jesus does. He teaches with the authority of God himself because he is God. And this is here so that you might see that and believe in him. That means his word floods our minds with truths, our lives with meaning, and our wills with a choice to make. Reject his authority, disobey his words, or accept his authority and obey his words. And the only way to do that with any real dignity is to spend time reading it and talking about it, being amazed by it yourself, and submitting to the person whose word it is, through repentance. So you can't read this word for long without realizing, wow, that's hitting home. It's laying out a life that is not the life I'm living. In fact, it shows the opposite and then tells me that there's judgment for it. And that's, that would be essentially harrowingly frightening for you were it not for the fact that the very same word tells you about his mercy and his grace and says to even sinners like me and you, nevertheless, even though you've rejected his authority, you come and you trust in this one because he died and rose again 
to deal with those sins. Romans 4.25 tells us he was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification so that we might be declared not guilty. So what do you do if you're not a Christian, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, what do you do with these words? Ask that question today. Talk about it with the person who brought you or with a regular here at the church. They'd love to talk to you about it. Because the best way to honor his authoritative word is to hear it, be struck by it, submit to it, and declare it. And brothers and sisters, that's exactly how this, these first couple of verses apply to us. It's what we must do. In a culture like ours, where holding to and holding out the authoritative word of God is worse than unfashionable, we must not be afraid to say what God says. Not in the slightest. We say what we say in love. We say it with gentleness and care. But let us never be guilty of undermining the Lord we love by diminishing his word by what we say out there. Let's set forth the truth plainly to each other, to the world, for the truth hasn't changed, nor the Lord of it. Are you amazed by it? It's easy as you come along week after week or read your Bible and tick off your Murray McShane reading plan and so on and think, I've done that. Are you freshly amazed by God's word? Or is it just like, yeah, it's just, another, it's just the Son of God doing what he does? There's a warning sign in there, friends. Jesus' words are powerful. And his words demonstrate that. That's what we see next, verses 33 to 7. On the very same occasion, what does he do? He exercises with authority, and the people respond in amazement. Notice I said exorcise and not exercise. Uh, verses 33 to 34 tells us that as Jesus was teaching, he was suddenly interrupted by a man who's demon-possessed. Now, again, if you're not a Christian, straight away you're kind of rolling your eyes and flipping your head back, saying you're thinking one of two things here, right? You're, you're maybe picturing this guy based on a horror movie you saw when you were way too young to watch one. You know, heads turning around 360 degrees and all that nonsense. Don't think like that, okay? Let the text do the speaking. Or two, you're maybe thinking, I'm done. I'm not listening to this supernatural claptrap anymore. Uh, and you're basically saying that because you don't believe in the spiritual realm at all. You're convinced that it's anti-intellectual and anti-scientific and so on. But is it? I mean, if the devil and demons are the myth mythological residue from a pre-scientific age, then Jesus' fight against them is mere shadow boxing. But take Satan and his forces out of the Gospels and Jesus is left like a fool punch in the air or a liar. But if you read through this book, you'll see that he's not. I mean, study the Christ. Consider the evidence. When you do, it's not that hard to believe that evil exists. Surely we see that, that evil beings exist. Plus, it's vital to know that even demon possession wasn't an everyday occurrence in the 1,500 years of, uh, in these last 1,500 to 2,000 years of history, prior to Jesus' birth, demon possession is barely mentioned. After Christ's death and resurrection and beyond the age of the apostles, demons are barely mentioned. But during Christ's ministry, when the good news is being preached, Satan's armies emerged to stop Jesus defeating them and to disrupt his preaching. And that's exactly what happens in this passage. A man who was demon-possessed started shouting at the top of his voice, 
How scary would that be if you were just sitting and I thought about getting somebody just to do this, just for the crack. You know, just get somebody to shout out, ha, really loudly in the middle of the service and see what happens. But no, I chose not. Adam, stand down. Don't worry, we're not going to do that. But it would, be, it would be unnerving, wouldn't it? You're already transfixed on this Jesus and this teaching with authority. And all of a sudden, this man just starts shouting out. But, I mean, you'd be scared out of your wits. I certainly would be. Ha, what have you come to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth, it says. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, what's really interesting about this demon's interjection is that it's, he's right. It's verse 34 is solid evangelical theology. I mean, it correctly identifies Jesus of Nazareth as the Holy One of God, that is the Messiah, God's promised anointed king. It correctly kind of understands what Jesus came to do, which is articulated in 1 John 3 verse 8, that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So that leaves you asking, why does Jesus silence it? Why not take this demonic publicity and turn its evil intent into something good why not say yeah that's right i am jesus of nazareth the holy one of god and you should all believe this too why does he not say something like that here's why because jesus doesn't want people to put their faith in him on the basis of the testimony of demons he wants them to put their faith in him on the testimony of his words. Jesus isn't looking for a grudging confession of his identity. He's looking for loving appreciation, amazement, and submission. As James 2.19 reminds us, demons believe orthodox truth and shudder. But there's no sense in which they are gladly recognizing Jesus. That's why he silences them out. And how does he do it? How does he do it? We live in the age of Marvel movies and dramatic fantasy. Does he just kind of blitz them with some kind of hidden superpower, Superman light from the eyes? No. What does he use, friends? The answer's in the text. Don't look at me, look at the text. With his words. Verse 35, Jesus opened his mouth and said, be silent and come out of him. And it did. Now, this is amazing because in those days, people would spend a fortune on medicines and magic to try and make this happen. What does Jesus do? Come out. And it does. This demon was powerful enough to possess a man to control him like a puppet through outbursts like this and throwing him down. But at the command of the Lord of all creation, of heaven and earth and all that's in them, the loudmouthed demon is firstly muzzled and then evicted. It's brilliant. The demon obeyed, as verse 35 shows. And how did the people react? The people were amazed. Again, surprise, surprise. Verse 36, and they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Now, Luke here actually uses a different word to the one he used in verse 32. In verse 32, they were ekplesod. They were kind of blown away out of themselves. The word, if you, if you like, was like, whoa, but this time they're just in awe, and the word is, wow. Like, they're that amazed. It's like, oh, my days kind of amazed. And 
And notice the focal point of their awe. It's his authority. He says, come out, and it comes out. He teaches with authority, and he commands evil agents with the authority, and they cease. They cease their work. Who can do that? Churchill, King, Aristotle, TED Talkers. Who? You? Me? No one. Only him. With words. Jesus' words, friends, are powerful. Now, words seem like such a weak means of changing lives. A weak weapon even to wield against evil. But they're not. Definitely not his words. Not in the mouths of those who follow him and who are indwelt by his spirit. Matthew 28, 18 to 20 is well known to us. The Great Commission, where Jesus tells us that all authority in heaven and earth has been, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So what does that tell us? tells us that Jesus has authoritatively placed in our possession words with more power than kings or Churchills or anyone else. Not words to enact miracles, except the miracle of regeneration. Saving souls. Through what? Well, that thing with a top lip and a bottom lip and a tongue inside. And with the words of Jesus declared concerning his death and his resurrection. Unbelievably. Can you believe it? People like you and me have our eternities absolutely changed. And it's still happening today. With the open proclamation of the truth of the word of God, these authoritative words of Jesus, spoken with all the authority that he has given to us as he is with us by his spirit, are effective, friends, powerful Think about that next time you're with your friend who doesn't believe in Jesus, who's just talking about other world events and says something, a wee kind of side dig at you about the fact that you still believe in this God of yours, even though this is happening over here in the world. You ever feel in those kind of moments like, if I say something now, I'm just going to look like a complete plonker. I'm going to confirm all their suspicions. They're going to think I'm absolutely crazy. Or you might think not just about yourself, but about them and their predicament. And you might just think, well, actually, they're so hard. I just don't know how they're ever going to believe this truth. I know what they hold to. I know what their identity is built around. Proclaim his words of power and see what happens. Because preaching his word is actually a priority. It is for us, but in the text, second point, it was for him. Okay? Jesus' words are powerful. That was point one. But point two, preaching his word is a priority. That's verses 38 to 44. Now, the interesting thing in verses 38 to 41 is that healing is not his priority. 
though he could. That's fascinating, isn't it? Verse 38 tells us that Jesus not only had the power to drive out demons, but to heal every sickness. Verse 38, and he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. Now, in, you're like, a fever, oh, come on, get over it. You know, but in ancient Near Eastern medicine, like, and remember, Luke is a doctor, right? That there was a high-low classification of fever. Okay, very simple. Low, take some paracetamol, you'll be fine. Uh, high, this is life-threatening, okay? This is really bad. Now, Simon's family asked Jesus, therefore, to help uh, his mother-in-law because she's really bad. So Jesus, verse 39, rebuked the fever, and as he did, the, uh, he did uh, it left her, just as the demon left the man, just like that. She was healed in an instant. And Luke says, so basically 39b says, immediately she arose and began to serve them. Now, that's amazing in itself, right? We've all had fevers, some severe, like man flu. But the worst, I mean, the worst I ever experienced besides the man flu was malaria. I was on a short-term mission in Rwanda and was absolutely floored by it many, many years ago. Oh, my word, that was horrific. And healing for us when we've had a really high fever and we've been very unwell involves for us, you know, a lot of recovery. You know, I wasn't at one point, uh, you know, healed of my, uh, well, after I had my malaria, I had to take lots of medication and take time to recover. It was horrible stuff. I didn't immediately that afternoon just kind of pull on my football boots and go out for a kickabout. It takes time. Healing for us involves convalescence, but Jesus, such is Jesus' power that the healing is instantaneous. I mean, I imagine Simon's mother-in-law kind of lying there moaning, you know, and at, at death's door, and then, you know, at the sound of Jesus' voice, just kind of popping up, saying, right, who wants a cup of tea? Anyone hungry? Like, in an instant, that's the kind of impression that Luke is trying to give us. This, this was a miracle. And just to prove it, Jesus did it again and again and again. Verse 14, now when the sun was setting, all those who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. He laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many crying, you're the son of God. And he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. He healed. Look at the text. Each one, each one of the many that were brought to him. His, demonstrating his authority, proving that Peter's mother-in-law was not a once-off. It wasn't a fluke. It couldn't be put off as a, no way, that didn't happen. It happened. And he exercised more demons, demonstrating his authority, showing that the synagogue man's exorcism was not a once-off or a fluke either. It happened. Now think about this, right? What would you do if you had that kind of of healing power. What would you do? Where would you be? Maybe that's a better question to ask. You know where I'd be? I'd be running a clinic at Edinburgh Royal Infirmary. That's what I'd be doing. What's your nearest hospital? Sorry? West Mid. Is that a shortened name? Yes, okay, good. West Mid. That's where you would be, right? That's where you would be. We'd all, we'd be there. We'd be like, if I can do this, bring them, okay? Because I'm going to do this. You wouldn't be holding, 
massive crusades and swinging your white jacket at people, you know, claiming that in the name of Jesus, you'd be having, you'd be doing this, you'd be gathering people at a clinic, you'd be going to the hospital and you'd be healing people. You'd be going to the local hospice and you'd be speaking these words of power to people. Because suffering and sickness and death are horrid. They're a curse. We know that from the scripture. But what does Jesus do? Though on this occasion he delivers each and every person that was brought to him from, from sickness or from demons, his priority is underlined as proclamation. It's preaching. Verses 42 to 44 shows that. Preaching was his priority. That is what he must do. Verse 42, when it was day, he departed. He went into a desolate place. That infers that the healing went on all night, by the way, from sunset to daybreak. But Jesus went to be on his own. That didn't last for long. Verse 42b, the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. They've been given a glimpse of what life would be like in the kingdom of this son of God. Would you want him to leave your city if he was here? Definitely not. Verse 43, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Earlier in Luke 4, we read that the Spirit had anointed him to proclaim good news. That's verse 18. A mission that ever rested in the forefront of Jesus' mind on the way to the cross. The proclamation of this gospel wasn't just for this town in northern Israel. It wasn't just for Capernaum. It wasn't just for Galilee. It was for everybody. And it wasn't, this proclamation of the gospel wasn't to be a secondary matter. It was a primary matter. It was a must. This is a must. Why? Simply because everybody who was healed would eventually die of something. Their suffering on that day was relieved, but only momentarily. For suffering to be removed entirely and completely and forever, he needed to die. He would need to go to his cross, but people would need to understand precisely why. That's why he proclaimed. That's why he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and himself as the king of this kingdom. Because by his death and by his resurrection, as he explained throughout, he would pay the price for our sins he would defeat the devil and death itself and reverse the effects of the curse of the fall. Now, for anyone to understand that and respond rightly to it, they needed to have it all explained. They need to be taught their condition. They need to be taught the solution. They need to hear the good news preached, the healings, the wonders, the spiritual authority. If you like, in Luke's gospel, these are all attention grabbers. Let me grab you by the ears and get your attention and let me tell you this, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. without embracing his teaching, the souls of those former demon-possessed people were merely emptied and swept. Only the truth would truly set them free. That's why he 
did not let them keep him in Capernaum. But he moved on and allowed more and more people to hear his powerful words and be changed by them. Friends, as I close, please be certain of this, that Jesus' authority is evident in his own words. And the responsibility that's placed on us in terms of application today is that we believe them. That was really the application in the first point. Believe them. These are words that have been spoken with authority, and you show that you believe them by submitting to them. It's not easy, right? We like to be the little lords of our own lives, and we struggle with that fact daily. But together, for you guys as a church family, you can help one another not just believe this gospel, but submit to his lordship, to love him and do what he says. And slowly but surely, gradually, as 2 Corinthians 3.18 reminds us, bit by bit, little by little, be more and more conformed to the image of the Son himself, Jesus Christ. Believe them, these words. Submit to them. It's the best way to live, for sure. And then remember the fact that Jesus made an absolute priority of proclaiming them. Despite all the other things that he could do, this he must do. And despite all the other things that God in his kindness has gifted you with and made you talented in, of all the things that you can do, this you must do. For this is what he's instructed us. This is the task he's given to his church. And the proclamation of his words must be a priority for all of us. There are yet thousands of places where the word of God has not been shared across our world. Even in this city, there are tons of people who need to hear this gospel. Where I'm from in Edinburgh, we're post-Christian for sure. You can walk out in the street and know, you can ask somebody, hey, can you tell me a little bit about what you know about Moses? And they'll be like, who's he? Is he famous? It's crazy. We need to proclaim so that they know and know about Jesus himself. Romans 10 reminds us, how will then they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Preaching, by the way, is not like somebody's standing up here doing, but proclamation for everybody, every single one of us. How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Is proclamation of the amazing words of the all-powerful Son of God a must for you? Is it a priority? How should that shape the way we spend our time, our money, our all, our lunch times, our breakfasts, meal times with friends? How should it shape our words? As I said, the average person speaks 7,000 words a day. Not many are significant. Most are mundane. Not many evoke amazement. In fact, most of them go unnoticed. But gospel words, where the content is Christ and his kingdom, spoken in faith and obedience, are powerful. And they count for eternity.
in achieving the purposes of God. This is how his authority, friends, is actually made known. This is how people know that he is a Lord and that they should call on his name. We don't need to manufacture that authority in some fancy Dan presentation. Not like some the communications gurus suggest. They say the power to persuade someone is possible simply by finding the position of strength in the room, by standing like a champion, you know, head up, shoulders back, punch packed, deepening your voice, being confident in your expertise, and that's a lot of nonsense. All the authority that we need is in the Word of God itself, and the Spirit who Himself is already active in the world to convict the world, the people we will speak to, to bring His people in. All the authority we need is in the powerful Word of Christ. We just need to let it loose. Let's take a moment in the quietness and just reflect just for the next 20 seconds in quiet on the fact that Jesus' words are powerful and the proclamation of them a priority. And then I'll lead us in prayer. Our Father, it's a kindness of yours to, for us to have this word even in our own hands, to be able to read these words so freely and to reflect on them with joy is a gift from you. Thank you so much for this. And we pray that you would bless us in the application of these. Indeed, you'd help us to tumble around these ideas and these words of yours from Luke 4 in our minds throughout this day, even after the formal time of gathering is over, in our conversations with each other. Help us to be freshly amazed. Help us to exercise our own God-given authority to be uh, co-counselors and co-encouragers in one another's lives in this church by helping those who are lackluster or not that amazed about Jesus and to help them see why they should be or to help those who are weary in their proclamation and to help them be encouraged to keep going. Thank you for the local church as a means of grace for the brothers and sisters here and the people they seek to reach, for all of us, for me and for my family and friends, for all of us, we have loved ones and people we barely even know too that need to hear this gospel. Help us to be those 
who truly do submit to you as the Lord we claim to love. Let it be plain in our living and not just in our confession. And help us to proclaim it, to declare it to those who need to hear it in confidence that you're the one who does the work in saving souls. And we ask this, that more and more people might be freshly and newly amazed, truly amazed, at Jesus, the eternal Son, whom we love. In his name, amen.